chapter 6, 13 through 20. Let me read it for you. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus, Abraham, having patiently waited and obtained the promise, for people swear by promising something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord, assurance is one of these things that we as people desperately need, Lord. What we, we need to know that we're right with you. We need to know the assurance of our salvation. And this passage here, right in the middle, right in the heart, right in the nitty and the gritty of this book, Lord, gives us the confidence, the hope, the foundation, the basis for our assurance that we can have in you. And I pray that it would do its effective work in us, Lord, just like it did for the Hebrews who first heard this, and for all so many people throughout the history of your church, Lord, who have read this passage and found great encouragement, great help, and great comfort, Lord. So take the words here of your book, and may they be the very food that brings vibrancy and health to our soul. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Usually my call to worship that I pick is not um, random. It's not one of those things where I just kind of flip open psalms and do one of them finger pokies, right? The call to worship today was very specific because if you'll notice in that call to worship, there's anxiety and doubt going on in the beginning of that psalm. And there's anxiety and doubt at the end of that psalm. And right in the middle you have these words. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, keep them. Keep what? Your word. You keep your words, Lord. You will guard us from this generation forever. And the generation is a wicked generation, isn't it? The wicked prowl, it says in verse 8. Everyone lies, it says in verse 2. Flattering lips abound and the tongue makes great boasts in verses 3 and 4. And especially in verse 4, it says, Ha! We can say with our words, who can possibly master over us? You see that contrast between the lying, deceptive, uncertain words of men... 
and the absolutely certain, true, powerful word of God. So we're called to worship here today. We're called to worship with the fact that God is absolutely sure, steadfast, and unchanging and unmovable. That's important because the book of Hebrews that we're in right now, we all know by this time is written to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome that are struggling under the persecution that they're experiencing. And they're kind, most of them are thinking about leaving the faith, walking away, abandoning what it is that one time they found so beautiful and so glorious and so precious. I mean, think about it. The last week and this week, we have seen the writer of Hebrews laying it on thick, heavy-handed with this concept of assurance of your salvation. But beloved, think about it. You need assurance when you lack it. You need assurance when you're insecure. You need assurance when you doubt. Right? As we go through life, there are all kinds of things and instances that come up in our lives that cause us insecurity, uncertainty, and doubt. In relationships, it happens often. At work, it can happen, and you're unsure of your position there just with other friendships. But in life, this comes up all the time. And the reason it comes up is because we understand that people are fickle. People oftentimes make promises make, say big, grandiose words, and then they don't follow through with them. Even more so here, what we have is a group of Christians who are not just simply relying upon men's words, but they're relying upon what they believe is God's word, that he has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners, and that if you would believe and trust in him as the Jewish Messiah, you would have eternal life. And so these Jewish Christians here under this persecution are now uncertain if the very salvation that they had hold out hope for at one point in Jesus Christ was really worth clinging on to, really worth maintaining, really is this worth it? This is hard being a Christian. It's hard enough for, for us in our culture, which is, maybe not Christian Disneyland, but we certainly don't experience very much in the way of persecution and hostility against us. Now, these guys were really experiencing it. But what we do find is that the book of James is correct in chapter 5 when it says that we all are people of like passions, meaning that we all have insecurities and we all have doubts, we all have frustrations and we all have struggles. We get this. We understand this. In fact, in our 1689, they understood it too, thankfully. If you have your hymnal and you want to turn real quick, it's on page 680 that I'm going to look. It says, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the very essence of faith, but a true believer may long wait and be in conflict with many difficulties before he becomes a partaker of it. 
being yet enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him, he may yet without extraordinary revelation in the right use of the means attain thereunto. Therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Thereby your heart will be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and in thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience will bear its proper fruit of assurance in time, so far as it is from inclining men to looseness. Now what does that mean? What he's saying there is that even though we can know that we're saved, we can believe and mentally assent to these truths, there can be a long time in our lives before we feel that full earnestness of assurance in our souls. So while we might acknowledge these truths of Scripture, believe them to be true for us, we might still for a long time, and the confession goes on to say that it even ebbs and flows, that there'll be times of assurance and then times of doubt, times of great and glorious security, and then times of uncertainty and despair that go on in the lives of us as Christians. Thankfully, they understood it. Because they read their Bibles and understand that we needed just as much in their day as we do in ours. And so what we have here is we have God giving this great promise with full assurance. This is to be what the Puritans might say a balm for our soul. You know what a balm is? Like ointment. Massaging oil, right? To get it in there and make you feel better. This would be a soothing balm for our soul, medicine what we need in the times of doubt and discouragement and despondency. That's what we have here in the passage we're looking at. And it helps because he just went through this passage where he says, hey, if you abandon the faith that you know to be true, there's no more salvation for you. And so he tells them, if you abandon this thing, there is no granting of you re-repentance because you've already left the very thing that is the only salvation for your soul. And so after having said that hard word, he turns around and says, but of you, beloved, we're sure of these great things, meaning I'm sure that this warning is going to have its effect. That me telling you this hard word is going to cause you to realize, oh, I'm playing with fire here. I'm going down a road I shouldn't. I realize that these doubts that I'm having, I'm allowing them to go to their conclusion in their mind, and that's unhelpful for me. And I do need to just rest in Christ's full and rich salvation. That's what we're looking at tonight. Verse 13. For... It's not always the best place to start a sermon with four, right? Because it implies something you just said. So let's back up a little bit. Look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish, not dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. 
So here it is. We have this faith that's been given to us. And this faith gives us hope to the end, a full assurance. But we need not become sluggish in the middle of that life of faith, that walk of faith. And what we should do is look around to those around us who are walking with full faith, strong faith, and it says here, be imitators of them. Now we're going to get to that in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, a whole big long list of people who by faith pressed on. But here he brings up one example, and that's Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now that exact phrase comes from Genesis 22. Now you guys know the story. Genesis 22 there, he takes Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him there on Mount Moriah in Israel. Well, before it was Israel. And he takes him up there and Isaac says, okay, here's the wood, here's fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And they get up there on top of the mountain, and God in obedience, pardon, Abraham in obedience to God and his word, binds Isaac and is about to sacrifice him when God says, stop, I see your heart, I see your faith, I see your confidence, And then he goes on to say, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now this is a reiteration of something he's already said three previous times. In chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. That God was going to make of him a great nation. Interestingly enough, Abraham dies at 125 years old. And he really only sees two people that fit this bill. Isaac and Jacob. That rapscallion of a fella. But he doesn't see this great nation. He never sees all of these children that come. He never sees this physical promise fulfilled. But God swore a promise to Abraham. And look what it says in verse 15 of our text. Abraham lived patiently and waited and he obtained the promise. What? (laughs) How did he obtain the promise? He never saw it. He never possessed any land except that grave place where he put Sarah, that cave in that field there. He never had a whole big, huge heir. In fact, part of his life, he's like, I don't have any children. My, all of my property is going to Eliezer, my servant. So what's up, God? But here it says, he obtained the promise after patiently waiting. That's a head-scratcher. Thankfully, there's some clarity. Look at Romans chapter 4. Gosh, Romans is a good place to go, right? So helpful. So many answers are found there. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world... Now, all of us who know Genesis, who know the promises and covenant that was made to God, know right there, God never said, you get the whole world, Abraham. But he did promise that his seed, his children, would be scattered across the world. As many as the stars in the sky or the sand 
on the seashore. But Abraham understood that as something greater than just a whole bunch of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and whatnot. He understood that God was saying something far bigger and the promise was far grander. That he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, this is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but all those who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, including Gentiles here. He says, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. You see, verse 18 says, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered that his own body was dead, or it was at least as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered even the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20 and 21 are important for us. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now. (laughs) We all know the story of Abraham. We all know there was distrust, and we all know that he swayed and wavered. We all know that he didn't fully understand and believe what God had said, and so he had not only Sarah, I don't know if he convinced her that this maybe wasn't going to happen the way God said, but had Hagar come in, and he conceived with her, and then Ishmael came along. But listen to the grace of God here. I love this. The grace even covers that particular sin. It's grace so abounding, so magnanimous, that God doesn't even bring it up here. Paul doesn't even bring it up here. It's absolutely unnecessary to bring it up here because Abraham trusted in the promises of God. And while he did sin, he still trusted the Lord, even in the midst of all that. I think, Lord, this is how you want to do it. No, it was sin. But he still didn't waver in those certain beliefs of his promise. He was convinced that God was able to do what he promised to do. I love that. (laughs) Your sin is not going to mess up the plan and purpose of God. His promise will stand. He is greater. He swore by himself to Abraham that he would accomplish all he set out to do. And even Abraham's fuddling with it wasn't enough to wreck, ruin the promises and plans of God. God will always get his word, his will, his promise accomplished. You can be sure of that. And thank God, because if your sin could muck it up, good night, it would. My sin would. I would completely ruin it if I possibly could. But I can't. And that's the kind of assurance this passage is giving to us. He's saying to these Hebrew believers, if you have doubt, just stop doubting. Turn and believe. Now that sounds really easy to do. (laughs) 
But that's why he brings up Abraham, you see. He brings him up as a weak vessel. A person who did not live up to all of the hype. But yet he inherited everything God promised to him. Not because of anything special in Abraham. In fact, it was against Abraham. It was opposed to what Abraham did. That's why it isn't about the law, you see. That's why Paul brings up the law in the first place in Romans chapter 4. Because it kind of doesn't make sense unless you think, oh, he's contrasting the promise with God with us trying to earn the blessing of God. By keeping the law. And we can't do it. We can't do it by keeping the law. Therefore, it has to be God's promise and God's sheer grace. That, beloved, is good news. That is the best news. For people swear by something that is greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed it. He cannot lie. These two unchangeable things are God's purpose and God giving the oath. And by these two unchangeable things, God gives us all of the assurance we will ever possibly need for trusting in him. Look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus there, he's teaching, he's just beginning that Sermon on the Mount, kind of getting going. And he has begun the section already where he's taking laws from the Old Testament or traditions of understanding those laws and saying what God actually means and what actually is trying to be communicated in the law. Meaning, the law is the character of God, right? We all get that. The law is the revealing to us of God's righteous character. And so when he picks up verse 13, pardon me, 33 there, he talks about giving of oaths. He says, You have heard it said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And so people were going around, you know, just like you do, and say, I swear to this, I swear to that, I swear to God, right? When I was a kid, I don't know if the kids still do this today. I'm a little bit removed from being one of the kids. But you go, no, 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 I swear, I swear to God. I saw it on TV. I saw it on the YouTube. I swear to God. And the reason why you would swear like that is because you're trying to make sure that you are earnestly communicating the truth. Of course, the implication is, is that sometimes otherwise, times when I'm speaking, I'm not telling you the truth, so this time I have to swear to God. Well, here Jesus says similar things. He says, don't do that. Instead, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, I swear to heaven, or the throne of God, I swear to the throne of God, or by the earth. I swear on the earth, or by his, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. I swear on Jerusalem. These people would even swear by the temple, or the gold that is in the temple, he says in Matthew chapter 23. Don't do that. Verse 36, don't take an oath by your own head, for you can't make one hair white or black. I wish I could make them red, because I'm starting to get white hairs. But I can't. 
So instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So here we have revealed to us the character of God. Meaning that his yes is yes and his no is no. So when he says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will multiply you, God will absolutely, assuredly, 100% do it. This is why even in Abraham's screwing about, still the promises were never going to fail because they were God's promises and not dependent upon Abraham's completion or obedience. Now, God cannot lie. We really, this is, this is, we don't have a point of reference for that. Everyone lies. We all do it, right? I'm taking the selfie and so I'll take it up here so I don't look as fat as I am, right? One of those kind of things. I'll, I'll fudge the truth a little bit. Maybe I'm talking with somebody and I'm meeting somebody and I don't know the answer to the question that they're asking me, but I have confidence, so I'll just throw something out there and hope it sticks, you know, and, and try to move on so I look better than I actually am. I compare myself with other people and think in my own mind, lying to myself, I'm better than that person, so therefore I'm okay. We all do it. We do it all the time. <laughs> We have no point of reference of a being that never lies. And you see here, God giving an oath is his condensation, his coming down to our level, his putting the cookies on the lower shelf kind of analogy. He is coming down to our level because we don't understand a being that doesn't lie because we all lie and we do it with frequency and regularity that God says, I want you to be so assured of what I'm saying here that I'm even willing to stoop down to your level and even though my yes is yes and my no is no, I'm going to give you an oath because I love you and I want you to understand that. God owes us nothing. But yet he, in his great love for us, his great understanding of our character and who we are as people, his great care and tenderness for those who are his children, he stoops. You know, Charlotte's not here tonight, but I can guarantee you that if she were in here and I were to sit down here on the floor, it wouldn't take but very long for her to come running over and hop in my lap. She does this cute little backup thing now where she finds my lap and sits down and then does a little dance. It's cute. Who doesn't love cute, right? But I stoop down to her level. Kids get it. If I stay up here all the time and I exist up here, I'm not making eye contact with kids. And I'm communicating something to them. I'm communicating I am over and above you. And until you are at my level, you're not the same as me. Your value is not the same as mine. And so I, I didn't learn this from anybody. 
But one of the things that I've just always done is when I'm talking with kids, and maybe you've seen me do it, is I'll get down on their level and I will get down on my knees and I will get down right where they're at and look them eye to eye because I want to communicate to them that they have worth, they have value, they have dignity, and that I care about them. And this is what God does when he makes an oath with us. He stoops down to our level and looks us eye to eye and says, I mean what I say. I'm going to do what I promise to do. I love you. I'm going to bring it to pass. So we see God stooping down like this. And he communicates to us, yes, I will not tell a lie, but I care about you enough to communicate that at your level. Listen, here's why. So that we, middle verse 18 there, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God has condescended and made an oath and made a promise to all of his children, all of us. What is that promise? You are mine. I have saved you. I have caused you to be born again. I have sent my son to die for you. I have poured out all of my wrath and judgment upon him for your sins. I have saved you and brought you into my family, adopted you as my own. I have justified you, declared you righteous. I have given you all things that you need for life and godliness. I am sanctifying you. I will get you home. That's the promise that he has made to us so that we who flee into that, who flee to Christ, who race into him, who trust him, might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is the antidote to the Hebrew problem. And by Hebrew, I don't mean the Jewish problem. I mean the church, the Hebrews that were there in Rome. The antidote to their problem was they needed strong encouragement. They needed a hard word, and they needed this encouraging word. And that's what they've gotten so far in this passage. And then he gives this beautiful picture of what this strong encouragement is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now this phraseology doesn't really appear anywhere else in the New Testament, at least in terms of the epistles. Yesterday I did a funeral, and I seem to do them more and more lately, especially because that's my job, I guess. But as I'm at this funeral and I'm speaking, people come up afterwards and they say nice things. Excellent sermon, minister. Oh, thank you for that. That was delightful. She would have loved that, meaning the one who died. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Then one guy comes up and he says to me, So what are you preaching on tomorrow, pastor? I'm preaching in Hebrews chapter 6. The eyebrow goes up. Oh, really? (laughs) Because anybody who knows Hebrews knows this is the spicy stuff. And I said, yeah, the end of the chapter where it talks about, you know, the promise and the anchor for our soul, you know, that part. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, with the problem of chapter 6, that's the other one that always comes up. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I think. I think probably Paul preached a sermon and 
probably someone like Luke or somebody there wrote it down. And that that's what we have here is we have a sermon that was being given that was written down and then passed on to the churches all around the area. But I don't know. That's, I like that idea. And he says, really? He says, what about, this is a, a very insightful question on his part. What about Hebrews chapter 6 makes you think that? And I said, the anchor. The anchor. Paul was in shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck. I mean, the book of Acts, man, there's all kinds of stuff going out there on the ocean. I don't want to go on the ocean because of the book of Acts. (laughs) But one of the things that you see there when those trials and those difficult, you know, water voyages are going on is that they drop their anchors so that they don't go crashing into things. Don't go crashing into rocks. Don't go crashing into a reef. They drop those anchors so that even though the waves are pounding them around, they stay where they are and don't get shipwrecked. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You have an anchor of your soul. And your soul, beloved, needs an anchor. Because if it doesn't have an anchor, you are going to be tossed to and fro by all of the winds of doctrine that come along. And you will be tossed from this way and that way if you don't have an anchor for your soul. This particular anchor for our soul is a hope that is enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Now the Jews who read this book would have understood intimately what that was. He's saying here that our anchor isn't one on a boat, but it actually is a person that has gone into the holy of holies and has offered himself on our behalf. Jesus has gone on as a forerunner on our behalf. Our hope is such a sure and steadfast hope that there no longer even needs to be a curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of us anymore because we have access to God thanks to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection in our place. We have him as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Now listen, he became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The whole next chapter is about Melchizedek, so I'm not going to talk about him tonight. We can get there next week, Lord willing. But Jesus is our high priest and has gone on as a forerunner, meaning that as a high priest, he has represented us before the very Father, before God Almighty, in the heaven of heavens. He has gone on already, and all of those people who would ever be his, who were his, are his at the time of his death, and would ever be his, namely those elect, were presented to God the Father as having been purified because of the blood that he shed, because of the death that he died, the wrath that he bore in their place. And he could only do this as he went into the ultimate holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God in heaven. And so the anchor for our soul is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus Christ is our surety. He is the one whom we can trust in above all things. So beloved... Is assurance one of the things that you struggle with? According to our confession, from time to time, it is going to be something you're struggling with. 
I'd be foolish to think that there was nobody in here who wasn't struggling with that right now. The truth of the matter is, is that we can have assurance. So if you're struggling right now, look to Jesus. He and he alone is the anchor for your soul. Not me, not the church, not works, not reading your Bible every day and praying every morning. But Jesus himself, he and he alone is the anchor for our soul. He and he alone is the great hope. He and he alone is our refuge. He is the one that we turn to. He is the only one that sets us right, that gives us the hope and confidence that we need. Because in anything else, there's only going to be works and trial and striving. And like God who condescended down to our place and looked us in the eye and made an oath, God also, in the person of Jesus Christ, condescended and became a man so that he might live the perfect life that we can't live so that his death would become ours, so his life might be mine and yours. You see, that's the great and good and glorious hope that we have in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's no greater assurance. It's only to be found in him. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the great hope and confidence that your word gives to us as your spirit applies this word and we see you as bigger and greater and grander than anything else, Lord. We ask that you would take these passages and may we truly love you better and know you more than we did when we came in, Lord. So that as we walk out of here today, may we and our hearts and our souls be rejoicing that we have been saved by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.